Let's turn in the scriptures to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to start our study today in verse 7. We'll get to it in just a minute. Just some introductory details. The gospel of Mark that we've been studying a few weeks now was written about 30 years after the events that it records. It was written by John Mark. He was a first century Jew from Jerusalem. His family home was in Jerusalem, and one of the early churches met there. He was about a decade or so younger than Jesus, and for a few decades after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, Mark not only served the church there in Jerusalem, but as the church began to spread throughout the world, he helped Paul in his mission to plant churches in Syria and in modern Turkey, around that northeastern edge of the Mediterranean, and he would end up then teaming with Peter, the Apostle Peter, in church planting in Rome. The Bible records, the, one of the last verses of 1 Peter, that Mark was Peter's protege, his, his apprentice. Church history records that what Mark was doing in recording the gospel according to Mark was he was putting into writing what Peter used to describe when he answered the question, who's Jesus and why does it matter for my life? What Peter spoke verbally, Mark reported in writing. That's what church history says the gospel according to Mark is. So, if you ask, who is Jesus and why should he matter for my life? The gospel according to Mark is Peter's essential answer. The, the essential answer of Jesus' lead disciple is the gospel according to Mark. Now, we ended last week in Mark 3.6. That was really the, the end of the first major section of Mark, chapters 1 to the beginning of chapter 3. The second section begins with what we read today and ends basically at the end of chapter 6. That first section, Jesus, right out of the gate, claims to be the Son of God who's come to earth to destroy what Satan has done to mess up this, this creation. He communicated then. James really preached this a few weeks back when he stressed the love of Jesus to forgive. Peter just stressed that Jesus has not only come to defeat Satan, he has come because he is willing to forgive. He has the authority to forgive. He is on a mission to forgive sinners. Not just to fix creation, but to forgive individual sinners. And I stressed last week, that Jesus proved he had the power to redeem all of humanity. That was the point of last week's message. Now, you notice, if you're looking at the passage, chapter 3, verse 6, ends saying, so he proves he has the power to heal people, and people want him destroyed. They take counsel together how they can destroy him. Hmm. Last week, I said, we shouldn't really be surprised and think to ourselves, how could those people have wanted to get rid of such a good guy? How could those people see that Jesus is so good and yet want him gone? We shouldn't react surprised. I think if we act surprised, it actually evidences pride in our hearts, self-righteousness in our hearts. See, we live in a culture that is similar, very similar to the first century culture. So many people today can see the good works of Jesus in terms of just what his church is doing. 
and yet they want him gone. Now, people today can know, I mean, this is not a debate. People today can know that research demonstrates that there are lifelong mental health benefits and physical life benefits in terms of longevity for people who go to church on a weekly basis. Statistics show there's actually a a new research division of Harvard University that's exploring the health benefits of church attendance. It's proven for decades. You go to church weekly, generally, statistically speaking, it's going to add one to three years on your life. Wow. People can know that. People can know the sociological data that for decades has repeatedly, every time it comes out, it shows that when people, particularly parents, follow Jesus' traditional ethics of sex and marriage, when people follow Jesus' traditional ethics of sex and marriage, everyone in the home benefits. Parents, children, everyone benefits physically, emotionally, financially, everyone benefits. People can know this. And people can see that when you look at the problems of unwanted children or abused children in this world, the people who are leading the charge into that territory saying we need to love the unloved, we need to rescue the trafficked and abused, who's leading it all the time? It's Christians. People can know these things about Jesus. His heart for people. His heart to bless people's lives and homes. They can know these things. And yet these same people say, Jesus is toxic. He needs to be marginalized in our society. In fact, he needs to be dismissed. His truth, the truth that he speaks, and his people need to be put out of public places, not allowed in public places, because Jesus is damaging. He's toxic. Now, I could have just fired you up. And you say, yeah, preach it, Joe. Tell us what our society is like. I just described what every single one of us comes into this world like. Have you ever made a decision in which you said, I know what Jesus says, and I even know it's good for me, but I want to do whatever I want to do. If that's ever been your heart, you know what it's like to know the goodness of Jesus and yet want him gone. That's natural. That's the natural bent of human beings. We say, we don't want the authority of Jesus. I might know that he's God's chosen king and that that he can change lives, but I want what I want. That's the problem of humanity. It's not just out there. It's in here. That first section really emphasized Jesus' identity and mission. The second section of Mark, basically chapters 3 to 6 that we begin today, emphasizes what following Jesus demands. So today's message is who can be in Jesus' family. All right, we're going to read the passage now. 
Mark 3, verses 7 through 35. Mark 3, 7 through 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. You might put next to that Edom, E-D-O-M. This is actually the location that was settled by Jacob's twin brother Esau. Edomites are coming to hear Jesus. And from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You're the Son of God! He strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is the first paragraph, kind of introducing the second section. And it really stresses that Jesus evidently had the power of God on him. Even the demons knew it. But Jesus wanted the demons, those who hated him, to be silent. He didn't want them spreading the truth of his identity. We already know from chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus didn't even want people whom he had healed to spread the, the, the things that he had done, their experiences with him to others. He is trying to diffuse rather than fuel his popularity. But despite his attempts to keep diffusing it, his popularity keeps spreading and people from surrounding regions are coming to him. But these crowds seem fickle. They seem more interested in his miracles than in really committing their lives to him and following him. Verse 13 says he, 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 he gets more specific in his focus. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles or sent ones so that they might be with him and that he might eventually send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed 12, second time that's stressed. He appointed 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagenes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I'm going to pause right there and say, if you're interested in studying these disciples more and focusing on them individually, I would certainly encourage you to do it. Let me give you a couple recommendations. A great introductory level book is John MacArthur's 12 Ordinary Men. A much more challenging but a very rewarding read, it'll take you a long time, is the 150-year-old classic, The Training of the Twelve by Alexander Bruce, A.B. Bruce. The third one I'll mention, and this is actually the most technical, but you might be interested in it, is Sean McDowell's uh, doctoral thesis. You can get it for free online as a PDF. A historical evaluation of the evidence for the death of the apostles as martyrs for their faith. Sean is like his dad, Josh. You might know his dad, Josh, from his book, More Than a Carpenter. Sean loves the study of Christian apologetics, how to defend the faith. And he wrote his doctoral thesis uh, on the evidence 
the historical evidence for the death of the apostles as martyrs for their faith. And he uh, presents compelling evidence that most of the apostles, in fact, died for the faith they were testifying of as eyewitnesses. Um, interestingly, there's compelling historical evidence that Thomas, I don't know if you knew this, Thomas took the gospel as a church planter in his lifetime into India and died there as a martyr for the faith. Pick up reading in verse 20. Then Jesus went home, probably to Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of the demons he casts out demons. So Jesus called to them and talked to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom's not going to stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house won't be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. He's going to come to an end. But taking it a step further, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he indeed may plunder his house. In other words, the one who takes this mighty fallen angel, Satan, and takes away from him, is a thief and steals from him, he's got to be stronger than Satan. He's got to be more powerful. And then Jesus warns very severely, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an, e of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, Jesus is possessed. Verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came and Standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he's my brother, my sister my mother. So this section begins introducing us to Jesus's great popularity, his massive popularity. And then the chapter after introducing us to Jesus's popularity has three basic sections. And each of these sections focuses on what it means to belong to Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Again, the second section of the book, is, is it's not leaving Jesus' identity and mission, but it's shifting from that emphasis over to what it means, what it looks like to follow him. My message today is, is going to be very, very basic. My message today is, uh, I hope, not too basic. I hope you leave here saying, we ate a good meal of meat and potatoes. My, my heart's full. I've been given strength to, to endure through this week with faith in Jesus. But it's going to be very, very basic. The title of my message is simply, Who Can Be in Jesus' Family? And there are three answers 
one from each of the three sections. The first answer is this. Who can be in Jesus' family? Well, those who stand on the foundational message that his 12 apostles preached. Those who stand on the foundational message that his apostles preached, his 12 apostles preached. That first paragraph, verses 13 through 19, really stresses that Jesus appoints 12 to be with him, and eventually he's going to send them out to preach. In selecting these 12, it is clear that Jesus is establishing the foundation layer of his church. And that there are 12 is really significant. The fact that he chose to train 12 and commission those 12 men indicates two things. The church is the continuation of what God has been doing throughout the Old Testament. Just like there were 12 sons of Jacob, there are 12 apostles. And the church is really the climax of what God has been doing throughout the Old Testament. Let me go one step deeper. By choosing 12, Jesus is emphasizing that he is continuing God's purposes for Israel's 12 tribes. To bless the people of every nation through a descendant of Israel. God has been doing this throughout history. And Jesus is saying, I'm continuing that. That's why there's 12 and not 13 or not 14 or not 11 or 10. There are 12 because this is a continuation of God's purposes. But by choosing 12 new ones, he is implying that the church is something new in the plan. It isn't simply the 12 tribes of Israel. It is a new development in history, a new development in that plan. And we might say it is the climactic capstone to God's plan to end the curse and to bless people of every nation, language, and tribe through the descendant of Israel. The only way that anyone on earth including people who live 2,000 years after Jesus in America. The only way that anyone is going to get reconciled to God forever, the only way that anyone is going to have the hope of living forever on a curse-free planet is if you believe what Jesus' apostles preached. There is no other way. No other way. Jesus picked 12 apostles They preached and laid the foundation layer of the climactic age of the plan of God. And if you are going to experience the benefits of life without the curse, you're going to have to believe what these apostles preached. If you have committed your life to Jesus according to the apostles' explanation, then no matter how difficult your life right now, you can be certain that you are reconciled to God forever and you will one day live in a a curse-free planet. These 12 apostles laid the foundation of the climactic chapter of the plan of God. Isn't that the way the Bible ends? I love the way the Bible ends. God's people 
are living in a city where God is. And that city has 12 gates. And you know whose names are on the gates? The 12 tribes of Israel. And that city has, interestingly, a wall that's 144 cubits. How do you get 144? 12 times 12. And the wall actually has foundation layers, 12 of them. And it's the 12 apostles' names. If you're going to live forever with God, you're going to live in the city whose gates have the 12 tribes of Israel and whose wall has foundation layers of the 12 apostles. It's the only way you're going to live with God forever. If you come to Jesus according to the truth that these 12 apostles preached. So, the people who belong to God, the people who are part of his eternal family, are those who believe what God was doing through Israel to bring about the Messiah. They are people who believe what the apostles who laid the foundation of the climactic phase of God's plan, people who believe what they preached. Second point, who can be in Jesus' family? Those who confess that Jesus is from God the Father and empowered by God the Spirit. Those who confess that he's from God the Father and empowered by God the Spirit. That's verses 20 to 30. In the second section, we're actually warned about two wrong reactions to Jesus. There's first his family's reaction. His family thinks, I think he's developed psychological problems. That is not a medical diagnosis based on years of watching him. It is an expression of their frustration over the fact that he doesn't diffuse the popularity more. I think this is what's going through his family's mind. Jesus, do you see the massive crowds? Do you see that people are coming from the capital city? Do you see that there are people who might have the ear of politicians down there in Jerusalem? Jesus, are you aware of what Rome does to men who gather followings and talk about coming kingdoms? Jesus, Why don't you diffuse all the craze? You're going to die. You're going to get arrested. You're going to get yourself killed. They're looking at what's going on with the popularity, and the New American Standard says, he's lost his senses. He's not thinking clearly. Jesus, calm down. That's what their reaction is. We're actually going to address how he addresses his family in the last paragraph in just a few minutes. The second reaction to Jesus is even worse. So there's one, he's crazy. The second reaction is, he's possessed. And this is the reaction of the legal scholars in Jerusalem. These are the religious academics. They conclude that this popular teacher, who's clearly healing people, must be living under the control of Satan. He must be empowered by the prince of demons. And again, Their evaluation is not based on years of of evaluation and carefully, you know, academically looking at the data. No, no, no. Their evaluation is based on prejudice. They don't want Jesus ruling. They don't want his power having more influence. But Jesus just reasons with them with very, very simple logic in verses 24 and 25. 
There he says, I'm reading the New Living Translation, a kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. Simple, effortless logic. We could keep going. A team that scores on itself is going to lose. An army who fires at its own soldiers is going to be defeated. It's hilarious to think about how faulty their logic is. It's ludicrous to think that Jesus is conquering demons with demonic power. Ludicrous. That's Jesus' point. And then Jesus issues a really severe warning, verse 29. Anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. What is Jesus talking about here? A sin that won't be forgiven. Well, clearly... He's warning the people he's talking to about what they're doing. They saw the miracles, and they're saying, he's not from God. He's not empowered by God. He must be from Satan. He must be empowered by Satan, possessed by Satan. And Jesus is directly warning them that if you continue in this blasphemous conviction that my power is from Satan and not from God, you're going to go to hell. You'll never be forgiven. God sent Jesus to make forgiveness possible. And if you say, and with conviction, and with perseverance, and without even caring, if you say, no way Jesus is from God, He's from the devil. Look at his toxic, dangerous influence on people. And you persist in that kind of assessment of Jesus, you will go to hell and never be forgiven because you're rejecting the one whom God sent to forgive you. That's what Jesus is saying. I want to park here for just one more minute because I know that there are Christians in our congregation and there are actually a few Christians in every congregation who misunderstand this passage and they worry they worry that they might have committed the unforgivable sin. It's a man named Don Whitney. There's actually an article of him in today's uh, bulletin on pages 15 and 16. Don Whitney is a pastor, professor, and author. He's most known for his book, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. I was taught by Don. I appreciate Don. And we've actually invited Don to speak here the first Sunday in October. I'll be giving more details about that in the future. I've actually asked him to come preach on the subject of this book, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? Because there, is, there are few things more critical in the life of a believer than having strong assurance that I'm in Christ. He's going to be preaching in Sunday school and in the morning service on How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? In chapter 8 of that book... He addresses Christians who worry that they've committed the unpardonable sin. And he defines the unpardonable sin like this. The unpardonable sin is a verbal, intentional, persistent, and unremorseful rejection of Jesus. He's right. And then Dr. Whitney applies it 
so simply and directly to Christians who struggle with assurance, thinking, oh no, maybe I committed it and I didn't even realize it. I've had blasphemous thoughts before. Maybe I committed the unforgivable sin and I'm never going to be forgiven. There are many Christians who are like that. And Dr. Whitney says, you cannot possibly have committed the unforgivable sin if you're concerned that you've committed it. Such wise, pointed pastoral counsel. If you're concerned about it, you haven't committed it. So this second section of our passage just teaches very, very simply that if you reject believing in Jesus, if you think Jesus is toxic and destructive for humanity, that he's actually a satanic influence to destroy God's creation, you will never inherit the kingdom. You can't because Jesus is the only way you can be forgiven. The third point is simply this. Who can be in Jesus' family? Third, those who do the will of God. Those who do the will of God. According to what we've already read in the gospel, I have it there on the screen, those who do the will of God are those who repent. They personally turn from their sins, their rebellious actions against God, and they believe the gospel. And then they follow Jesus, God's chosen king, no matter what the personal cost. For Matthew, the personal cost was leaving his job and actually admitting his wrong as a tax collector. It was massive change in Matthew's life. But he had to follow Jesus no matter how hard. So, according to Jesus, those who are his family, those who belong to him, those to whom he is forever committed to love, to be with, and to protect, that's what family does, those to whom Jesus is forever committed to loving, to being with, and protecting are not those who are biologically related to him. It is those who are convictionally related to him. They are convinced about the truth of Jesus. So, Jesus actually says it very clearly in verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he's my brother, my sister, and my mother. What Jesus is saying here is that the 12 disciples were actually his family in a closer and more enduring sense than even his biological family. I want to clarify this in two ways and then wrap up. The first clarification I want to make is when Jesus says, it's not my mother, my brother, and my sisters who are my family, but actually those who do the will of God. Jesus is not saying that our biological family relationships don't matter, right? He's going to, later in this book, in chapter 7, he is going to command us and to reiterate the command that's on people to honor their parents by caring for them in their old age. I've tried to encourage Jim and Tammy here in recent weeks as they have been exhausted in the service of, of Jim's, Jim's dying mother. As they've been exhausted, I've tried to repeat what 1 Timothy says. 
that what you are doing in honoring your mother is well-pleasing. Paul says it's very pleasing in the eyes of God. The way you are pouring yourself out for the mother who raised you and now you are committed to loving till she sees Jesus. You are doing what is very pleasing in the sight of God. Paul there in 1 Timothy 5 actually says that when there is a widow in need, the biological children, not the church, are the first responders. They're the first line of caregivers. So Jesus is not suggesting that biological family doesn't matter anymore once you've committed your life to him. There are cults that teach that. That's not the Jesus according to the Bible. The second clarification is Jesus is teaching that our biological family should be a preview of our eternal family. For Christians, biological family should be, in an ideal sense, it should be a preview of our eternal family. I am committed to my family. I am responsible to my family. I spend time with my family. I seek to protect my family. I seek to provide for my family. I love my family. And that biological family should actually preview our eternal relationships with all who've committed their lives to Jesus. See, because I am not forever going to be a husband and a father. If my family embraces the gospel, then there is coming a day when I am going to relate to them as brother. In Jesus' family, we're brothers and sisters. And what we've experienced in terms of committed, loving relationships as a biological family is really just a preview of the ultimate family. And so let's, let's invest in our biological families with the goal of glorifying God. But let's not idolize our biological family to the extent that we think this is what life is all about. No, what we're even seeing today is that family is constantly changing. You're single, and then you get married, and then you have kids, and you raise those kids, and eventually those kids are caring for you as you're passing off the scene, and they're investing in their children and grandchildren. Families don't stay the same. They're always changing. And they're supposed to be little previews of the ultimate family. Let's pray that our family members will embrace Jesus Christ. I say that in eternity, it's very clear from the teaching of Jesus that I won't relate to Hannah as a husband or to my children as a father, but there will be like a brotherly peer relationship there. I do not think that that means that we will be more distant from each other. I think it's actually describing a closer relationship of committed love that that the commitment we've had to each other now is just previewing. In Tri-County, I think it's our responsibility as a congregation to try to care for one another in such a way that previews the kingdom. This is how we should care for those disciples in our congregation. By God's grace, I think we do that. I think we do that well, but we do that with many, many flaws. I wish we could do that a lot better. And with God's help, 
We are committed to one another and to keep growing in the ways we care for each other. We are supposed to be a little outcropping of what that eternal family looks like. Let's keep growing with that goal set before us. So the main point, just keep the screen up. The main point of Mark 3, 7 through 35, is that Jesus' family is made up of those who stand on what the apostles preached, who confess him as God's son, who's from God the Father and empowered by God the Spirit, and they are those who do the will of God. They turn from their own natural rebellion. They submit their lives to Jesus as God's chosen king, crucified for their sins, risen to destroy death. And we follow him no matter how hard the cost. I could state that negatively. Jesus' family isn't made up of the crowds who are only interested in him when they're in a time of crisis and they say, help! It's not the crowds that are interested in the immediate help. Jesus' family isn't made up of religious scholars, those who know the Bible well academically. Jesus' family isn't comprised of those who are biologically connected to him. Let me just put it bluntly. You can't become a Christian by family connection. Your parents don't get you into the kingdom. Your grandfather, who was a preacher, doesn't get you into the kingdom. The fact that you grew up in church doesn't get you into the kingdom. You don't get there by biology or by tradition. You get there by personally doing the will of God. Jesus is clarifying that the people who belong to him forever, who are part of his new family, are those who believe what the apostles preached, confess him to be God's chosen king, and they commit their lives to him, for better, for worse. Ultimately, for better. Let's pray.